0: Bible to the second chapter of Galatians. Our study this evening is in verses 15 through 21 and we are going to finish these verses tonight and then we'll be ready to move on to another chapter, uh, the third chapter, and that's going to be uh, actually three weeks from this evening before we get to that. Uh, So we'll look forward to getting into that third chapter. But before we read our verses tonight, I want to call your attention to the last verse of chapter 2, and that is, is the key verse to this section, where Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now, the emphasis in this section is on the grace of God, which brings about justification through faith in Christ. And to include any of our own works in our justification is to frustrate the grace of God and what Paul means by that is that grace is made void, that we annul the principle of grace and we despise it in favor of a works type righteousness when we consider works as part of our justification and that makes the sacrifice of Christ an unnecessary act. So if you look at the 15th verse, Paul says, "Who he says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, before we go on there, just let me throw this in here. When you see works of the law, don't just think of Ten Commandments and don't just think of all the things that you read in the Old Testament that have to do with the ceremonial laws that were given and now been taken away. But think about anything that you do in your own energy, in your own flesh, anything that appears to be some type of work for God. These are all things that are excluded from our justification. So we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments itself. Now we go on reading there then. He says, but if we... That's verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For, I, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I... But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Last week, I gave you the complete outline for this message, and I gave it to you in sort of a nutshell. And what we need to do now is just to go back and fill in the gaps and go through these verses, breaking them down and explaining what Paul has in mind. And this is Paul's argument against Peter's action in the previous verses, in which he separated from Gentile believers by refusing to fellowship with them and to eat at their table. And that might seem like a very small indiscretion and something that just occurred in one church. And we might think, why is that so important? But in the mind of the Apostle Paul, he was able to see that this action of Peter's would have a much larger, devastating effect on, the, on, the, uh, on Christianity as a whole. Now, although Peter was in agreement with Paul on the doctrine of justification, his actions were wrong, and they would cause Jews and Gentiles to think that they weren't in agreement. And these verses explain the implications of Peter's mistake, both to him and then also to the church at Antioch. And then in turn, Paul uses this incident that happened in Antioch to teach the Galatian Christians and uh, about justification and to drive home this point that we are freely justified by faith in Christ. Now, I want to step through these verses, which are a little bit confusing at first and show you how that Paul makes the point that works justification is a complete repudiation of the grace of God. Now the first point in your outline then is the greatest problem. And the greatest problem is that we are sinners that are justly condemned and under the wrath of God. And that's true of both Jews and Gentiles, even though the Jews were singled out by God and they were set apart to be his own peculiar people and they were given his commandments uh, they are also sinners notice that Paul says in verses 15 and 16 we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ even we have believed in Jesus Christ That we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, Paul begins by making the point that as Jews, they had been saved by Christ, Their, their hearts had been opened up to the truth of the gospel, and they understood that salvation is a matter of the heart, that it's not a matter of your outward actions or outward performance. And Peter and Paul and all the other apostles had agreed upon this, that this is the doctrine that was been taught by Christ. So this is not an argument to try to get Peter to change his mind and give up believing that he could be justified by keeping of commandments, because Peter never believed that. Instead, they're in agreement on this, and Paul restates this common belief that they have that justification is by faith alone. And when he refers to we who are Jews by nature, he means those of us that have been favored by God and we have been given the law, we very clearly understand that we've been freed from the keeping of commandments or any type of works that we might do as a means of being justified. And then when he refers to the sinners of the Gentiles, he's not making a distinction that Gentiles are sinners but Jews aren't. He's saying that from a nationalistic and a theocratic standpoint that the Gentiles were not given the commandments. And so the Gentiles are not expected to live by the same rules, the same laws that were given to the Jews. And so they can't do that if they haven't been given the law. But they're still sinners. They're sinners because they are legally apart from God even without having the law. Now, on the other hand, of course, the Jews have all of the law. They have not only the Ten Commandments, but they have all of those ceremonial laws as well. And God gave none of those to Gentiles. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about how that... Before he became a Christian, he misunderstood the purpose of the law. And that led him to a very strict type of obedience to it. He says in Philippians 3 verses 4 through 6, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man... Thinketh he hath whereof, to, uh, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Now, what he's saying there is that if anybody thinks they could be saved by keeping commandments, by doing the law, then all he needs to do is look at me because I'm the very best at it. I'm the best there ever was is kind of what he's saying here. If anybody can boast about who they are and what they've done, he says, I can boast. And he goes on and he says circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, teaching the righteousness which is of the law or touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. So he has all qualifications that a person could possibly need if you could be saved by the law. But now that he's been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, His understanding is opened up so that he sees that the law, uh, his understanding of that is corrected in order to see that none of the things that he could do could justify him or any other Jew. And so he says, despite all of this law that's been given to us, we have rejected the law as the means of bringing us to God. And so his point is, if, if we are those who are the guardians of the laws and customs that were given to us by God, if we who are the ones that that have kept the law so meticulously and now we have rejected them as a means of salvation, then why would we ever subject the Gentiles to the things that we did before when we've already seen that they don't help us? Now notice the 16th verse and how that Paul shows his greatest problem or the greatest problem is common to all whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile. He says, knowing that a man, and there man is a general term, he means any kind of person, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. He says, even we have believed, and the we there refers to the Jews, and he says we know, that means that we know by experience, we have abandoned the law, we have committed our lives to Christ as the only Savior, we put this to the test, and we have found out that the law is no good in order to make us right with God. And he says that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And when he uses the word flesh here, that's the universal aspect of what he's saying. Flesh refers to all, all mankind. It's a universal term. So he's saying that no person is ever going to be justified by the law. So why would we ever even think of taking a person down that road? Now, refusing to eat with Gentiles because of a ceremonial law teaches both Jews and Gentiles the wrong thing. It takes them down a path that's a dead end. And that word goes out to anybody, anybody in Christianity who's tried to figure out some other way to get to God other than faith alone. It just can't work. It's always a dead end. Now, here Paul goes to the Old Testament and when you have a, a moment, you can look up the reference to this. It's in Psalm 143, verse 2. And so what he does then is to make an argument in the strongest terms, the, the, the best argument possible for salvation in Christ alone. And what he uses here are three different avenues of proof. First, he says, we know. And that's a reference to his apostleship and also that to that of Peter. And so upon the authority of the apostles, what they know is that they're not justified by the works of the law. So you have the authority of the apostles. Argument number two is their personal experience, or his. He, he tried to be justified by the law, but it didn't work. And we'll see him state that again. And then thirdly, he makes that appeal to the scriptures in the Old Testament. So you have apostolic authority, you have apostolic experience, and scriptural testimony. So if you believe that the apostles are ministers of Christ and they're not pretenders and you believe that the word of God is the direct revelation given to us from God, then there is no hope of ever trying to defend a type of justification that comes by things that we do. Now the second thing that we see in our outline is the least potential. Verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. One of the greatest objections that is leveled against the doctrine of justification by faith alone is this, if God justifies us freely without regard to human effort, then what good is human effort? Why why should we worry about keeping commandments? Why should we try to live a holy and a righteous life? And the objection is that a doctrine that says that you're justified by faith alone actually makes greater sinners out of people. So in other words, if we teach that we're saved without the law and we continue to sin, then this doctrine of Christ has actually made Christ himself a teacher of sin. Well, the Pharisaical Jews would go along with that proposition very well. I mean, they they could accept that. It's also an idea that's accepted by those who believe that a Christian can lose his salvation. I mean, this is one of the main arguments they make. That if we are eternally saved without regard to our living, then we can just go on living in sin. Because sin doesn't affect our eternal souls. Well, Paul anticipates those kinds of arguments, and he he just sternly rejects it. And so in the strongest terms of denunciation, he says, God forbid. And that's like saying, absolutely not. No how, no way. And then he goes on in verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So he's saying, Christ is not the one that's at fault. If after I'm justified with God and I continue to sin, then sin is my fault, not God's. Building up those things which are destroyed is actually a reference to sanctification. Now, in salvation, the dominion of sin is broken and it's torn down. And so if we sin again, then we build again on that foundation that has been destroyed. And if we do that, who's to blame? Is it us or is it God? What Paul does here is to expose the complete misunderstanding of those that insist that works need to be added to complete justification. And what they don't understand is that although our legal status with God is changed by faith, there is also a change that's been affected in our moral status. And I think we touched on that maybe in in the lesson on justification where justification and sanctification are two different doctrines, but every person that is justified is also sanctified. It's two different operations, but you don't have one without the other. And so Paul uh, is showing us here that there is a change in our moral status that takes place at the same time that we're justified. So we become, as the Bible says, a new creature in Christ. And the thought that a Christian, a true believing Christian, would want to go back to sin and to live in sin is just something that's completely foreign to our new understanding. And that's because we've been given this new nature in Christ. And then we also have a reference to Peter's actions in verse 12, and in a very inoffensive way, and you might imagine that Paul would want to take an inoffensive tack because he's been really, really hard on Peter up to this point. But in an inoffensive way, he says, if we go back and we practice what we were taught to abandon, that's not only inconsistent, but it's also sinful. It's sinful to do that. So if we rebuild the foundation of the law as the means of salvation, which is what they all believe previous to their uh, knowledge of Christ, he says, then we do despite to the grace of God or we destroy the meaning of Christ's death. Now that was not Peter's intent. He certainly didn't set out to do that, but that was the inevitable result. Now, he goes on in verse 19 to show that he had no potential of righteousness in himself, that he can't trust his ability to keep the law, but he must run to Christ for justification. Faith has replaced the confidence that he had in the flesh. So he says, for I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. And when you study Paul, you find that when he came face to face, with the righteous demands of God's law, he finally understood that he could not keep the standard that God requires. Now, from an outward demonstration, from that viewpoint, as a Pharisee, he, he commanded much respect, and he had a lot of people's attention and the confirmation and approbation of his peers, but that's not what counts. The outward show doesn't matter. For an outward show, Paul gave people anything they ever wanted, But then when he learned the real meaning of the Old Testament and the intention of God's law and saw that God looks at the heart and that God demands allegiance with all the heart, with all the mind, and with all of our strength, then Paul knew inwardly that he had not met that standard. And so the deeper that he went into the law, the more that his heart was exposed. And that's what happens with all of us. When Jesus taught the law, he went beyond the outward acts. See, he said you can keep from committing adultery, but then he asks, what did you think in your heart? And you can keep from stealing, but he wants to know about covishness in your heart. And you can keep from murdering people, but he wants to know, do you have a heart that gets angry? Are you someone that, that harbors hatred towards someone else? Now, when that standard then goes beyond what we do outwardly and goes down to the very deepest motives behind every action, then we know we can't keep the standard. We have no potential to keep God's standard of righteousness. You can't do it with a heart that hasn't been changed from its radical corruption. So what did Paul say this did to him? Well, he says the law killed him. And he means the law killed his righteousness. It completely obliterated the basis for which he fought that he was right with God. It destroyed his, his righteousness, his basis of righteousness. Now listen to his comments in Romans 7. He says, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now he hoped to find righteousness in the law, but when he understood it correctly, he found the law was no help for him. In verse ten he says, In the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. And this is what Adam found out, didn't he? I mean he was insured by God that if he kept God's commandments perfectly, if he did everything that God told him to do, that he would have eternal life. He would live in the garden as long as he kept God's law. But he sinned one time. And what did sin do? Sin brought death. One sin brought death. And so Paul found out what trying to live by the law was like it doesn't do anything but bring death he said for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me so he had nothing to look for in the law the law pointed away from itself to a different salvation and it thrust him upon the mercy and the grace of God and this is the way the law works we'll learn it When we get into that third chapter, this is the way that it works. It's cruel to anyone who wants to be saved by it. It's a taskmaster that puts burdens on us that we're unable to bear. So Paul, when he understood it rightly, was beaten down into the ground by the law. So he says, I'm dead to the law. I'm dead with the law. No potential. I have no hope. Worse than he ever imagined that he could be. So what's the solution to it? Well, thirdly, we look at the greatest provision. He says, for I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. So the law killed him. It served its purpose. It brought him to the only place that he could go. He must go to Christ. So God provided an answer for the awful dilemma that he was in. And he says in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now, we see here how Paul contrasts life and death. He's dead to the law, but now he lives in Christ. Now, at first, what has to happen, there must be a spiritual resurrection. Christ's physical resurrection guarantees that every believer in him has both a spiritual resurrection and a physical one. Jesus taught that in John chapter 5. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now that's actually a great verse on justification by faith. He says, He that believeth on him that sent me. And he says, Shall not come into condemnation. And what have we learned is the opposite of condemnation? justification they're exact opposites so justification then is found in the verse and he says if we are if we believe we are not condemned we're justified so we pass from death to life now notice in the next verse we find the spiritual resurrection verily verily i say unto you the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of god and they that hear shall live Now who does Jesus mean when he talks about those that are dead? Who are they? Well, there are people like the Apostle Paul that sought to be justified by the law and found no hope there. And so turning from that and finding they were spiritually dead and helpless, they go to hear the voice of the Son of God. And always remember that when you see hearing, In Scripture, in a context like this, the word hearing actually means believing. It's the same thing. So they're enabled to hear. They believe, and when they hear, when they believe, they shall live. Then Jesus goes on in verse 28 to speak of the physical resurrection. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth They that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Now, pay attention there that he says those or they that have done good. And that doesn't mean those who have tried good works and those who have kept the law. It means those that have done good are those who have believed and have been justified by faith in Christ. And he says what will happen to them is that their spirits and their bodies will be resurrected to eternal life. Now that's the answer to the universal problem. Paul wrote in Romans 10 verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believe it. So the result of Christ's work and not our work is that we're enabled to live for God as stated at the end of verse number 19. Negatively, living unto God means that we no longer live to self, and positively, living unto God means that we live for the glory of God. And so Paul puts these references of death and resurrection in here to thoroughly reject the claim that we can be justified in any other way but faith in Christ and that we are sanctified as well. So the body and the spirit are all taken together, uh, glorified, and will be in heaven. So Paul then is showing us that he wouldn't go back to sin. He, he wouldn't do that, and neither will any other true believer want to go back to sin because a change has taken place on the inside. Now you'll notice how that Paul sums up all of these points In 1 Corinthians, when he said, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And so you see that? Our righteousness comes from Christ. And remember, that's the same word translated as justification. We are legally right with God because of Christ. Our sanctification comes from Christ. He's made us morally right in order to live in the right way and to live for him. Then it says we are redeemed from the curse of the law. And that means that none of the punishments of the law can be imposed upon us because those things were put upon Christ who is our substitute. Now because Christ did all of that for us and God has provided salvation for us, there is no reason for any of us to boast. It's all found in him. And so he says, God is the one who deserves the glory. Therefore, let him glory in the Lord. Well, we go on now to the fourth part of this, and that is the greatest promise. Verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the greatest promise is that Christ lives in me. And now I'm not subject to the law any longer. I'm dead to the law. Now what happens when you're dead to the law? Well, let's suppose that tomorrow you go to work, and let's suppose that you are a post office employee, and if you're, you're, you're already prone to half craziness anyway. And so you take a, a gun to work and you go postal. You know, it's interesting how those words find their way into our vocabulary. I mean, what person first learning English would have any idea what it means to go postal? Does that mean to mail yourself? What does that mean? Uh, They wouldn't know. But you go postal, and so you kill five employees and three customers. So they put you in jail, and they give you the death sentence. And sometime in the future, maybe before we reach the first planet that circles the star alpha centauri way off in the future somewhere and you go through all the processes that are going to put somebody to death you finally get to that point and they put you in the room to put you to death and there they have the mixed cocktail of the, of the one drug or three maybe we'll have that decided by then and they decide to put you to death now what happens then if they put you to death but then after you're dead you get up and you walk away from the table well what's the law going to do to you The law has prescribed the penalty. It says you must die, and you died. And so if you raise from the dead, the law can't do anything else to you. The law has no provision that says, now, you kill this person, and then when they're raised from the dead, this is what you have to do next. The law has no provisions like that. The law doesn't say anything about it. So if you were raised from the dead, then you're free from the law. There is no penalty for you. You already suffered the penalty of the law. And that's what happens when you place your faith in Christ. You see, you were guilty, and I was guilty of egregious crimes against a holy God, and because of that, we were due for an eternal execution. That takes place in the fires of hell. But you died to the law. You trusted Christ and you died to the law, and the law has no more claim on you because you've died. We well, you say, "Well, when did I die?" Well, we have the answer here. You died in Christ. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. And obviously, he didn't mean that he was on one of those two other crosses on the day that Jesus was crucified. And those that he was talking to would never interpret it that way either. Paul was not there at the personal crucifixion of Christ. He means that when Christ was on the cross, that he took Paul's sins, he took the punishment of Paul's sins on the cross. And that's what happened to you if you are a believer. You died in Christ 2,000 years ago when Christ took your punishment. And so by faith in him, you receive all the benefits of his death. All his benefits are appropriated to you. All the claims that the law had against you have been satisfied by him. It's all been removed. And so now as you live your life, you never have to go along and keep looking over your shoulder and wonder, well... Is the law ever going to catch up with me? Is the law going to be able to condemn me? Am I going to be caught? Will I be tried for sin? Well, no, because you're dead to the law. The law's done all it could do. It's done the worst that it could do, only it did it not to you, but it did it to the one who is your substitute. So you died in him. And that's the same as saying that all of the fury of hell was thrown against you and you came through it all. Now, this is what I find to be one of the most fascinating parts of Christ's death. If he had been just a man, then all he could ever do was to suffer for one man's crimes. And after he'd done that, he still wouldn't have completely satisfied God. Crimes against God are against an infinite person, and that requires infinite punishment. And since Jesus was the God-man, he could physically suffer as a man for man's crimes, But because he was God, he could suffer in an infinite capacity. Hell is an eternal place, and Christ made an eternal sacrifice. Now we notice that Paul says, the life I now live. If Christ's death was not the endurance of eternal punishment, then all it could do was pay for Paul's past sins. I mean, everything that's up to the point of belief would be paid for. But then what do you do after belief? What happens if you sin again? Well, you'd be on your own and you'd have no better hope of heaven than you had before. And that's because the very next sin that you commit would be a death sentence. So we go back to the analogy. If you're put to death for a crime, the law has no hold on you. But if you come back to life, the the law can't do anything else to you. But what happens if you come back to life and you commit another crime? Well, then you've got the law on your tail again. It comes right back after you. But it's not that way when we're justified in Christ. He died and rose again, the Bible says, for our justification. And his righteous life actually becomes our righteous life. So that future sins can never be charged to us. They can never condemn us. Now, if they could, then we notice the consequences of it. Verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And he's saying that Christ's death means nothing if we can be justified by the law. So we'd have to just ask, well, what did he die for? If I can do for me what needs to be done, then why did Christ come and die? His suffering and death really didn't mean anything. What was the purpose of it? If the law can still have a hold on me, then what did Christ do? Well, it's not going to help you if Christ's death doesn't cover all of our sins because the law will come back and condemn us again. And for that reason, we have to have a separation between works justification and justification by faith or by grace so that these two never are able to cross paths. They have to be kept fully separate because if works enter into this in any way, it destroys the grace of God. And that's what Paul says frustrates or dis- causes us to despise God's grace. Now, let me show you how serious it is to get mixed up and teach the wrong thing. If you say that Christ died in vain and that the blood of Christ did not do anything, that it's worthless, then what's, what's, what's the consequence, the problems with that? Well, we, we look at this in connection with or comparing it to the Mosaic Law, What happens if a person said that the Mosaic law was worthless and they just ignore the law and they go and do anything that they want? Well, they put lawbreakers to death, didn't they? Hebrews says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment? Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and it's done despite under the spirit of grace. He's telling us that it's very, very serious business to elevate law above grace. Now, recycle that to the thought or the issue that brought up the whole discussion in the first place. Peter's actions put law above grace. Now, he didn't mean to do it. He knew better. He was an apostle just like Paul was. But he still is guilty of this. And so you have all these implications that are running through Paul's mind and he sees, sees the, the outcome to the doctrines of Christ in a crystal clear way. And what he wants to do is to get the Galatians to see it as well. So no wonder he said to them in that first chapter, if anyone comes to you with another gospel other than the one that we've taught you, he says, let him be accursed. So Peter's actions actually put him on the watch list with the Judaizers. What did Paul overreact to this? Not in light of the seriousness of the offense. Do you ever wonder why that we consider it to be a serious offense to the cause of Christ if we take up an ecumenical banner and we mix ourselves with all different kinds of groups that have substituted a works righteousness for faith in Jesus Christ? that is an egregious violation of the word of God so we're very careful about it others may not see it that way and they're not as careful as we are but we understand as Paul did that if you let these things go by you will destroy Christianity and if Paul had not said something about this Christianity would have never made it out of the first century well let me finish with two quotes we're about out of time Uh, The first one is from Joseph Hallett concerning our text verse. And and, in this quote, he explains the debt of gratitude that we owe to Paul. He said, This interesting paragraph is one one among many proofs that we Gentiles are indebted inconceivably more to the Apostle Paul than we are to any man that ever lived in the world. He was an apostle of the Gentiles and gloried in that character. While Peter went too far toward betraying our privileges, our Apostle Paul stood up with a courage and zeal becoming himself. For us in particular, as for Gentiles in general, our invaluable friend labored more abundantly than all the apostles. For us, he suffered. He was persecuted for this very reason because he labored to turn us from darkness to light and to give to us the knowledge of salvation upon our repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How dear then should his memory ever be to us? While it would be intolerably weak in us to worship him, We should always think and speak of him with the highest veneration and respect, remembering the strong reason, the elevated understanding, the accurate discernment, the consummate knowledge, the fine address, the affectionate zeal, the unshaken fidelity, the undaunted courage, the firmest patience, the incomparable writings, the wearied labors, and the uncommon sufferings of this truly Christian hero— whose character, after he became a Christian, is the most uniform and finished, the most unspotted and amiable of all the characters of mere men that ever adorned the world. And then, finally, a quote from Lewis Johnson that sums up what we've studied fairly well, I think. He said, If you had your money in an insolvent bank, the mightiest faith in that bank would not save your money But the tiniest little bit of faith in in a solvent bank means that your money is safe. Our bank is the merit that our Lord Jesus has accomplished by the cross of Calvary. We have borne our penalty in him and by virtue of his sacrifice, God pardons our sins and imputes righteousness to us. The tiniest little bit of trust in our Lord Jesus Christ means that we have the assurance of everlasting life, the assurance of justification before him. To refuse to cast off human confidence is to insult the grace of God and defame the cross as a futile work. And that pretty much sums up that last verse that we've used as the key. So Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I... But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And Paul will have much, much more to say on that subject. We have a long way to go in studying this great doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time tonight and for those who have come to hear your word. And Lord, we're getting into uh, deeper parts of the word and things that are hard to understand and to get clear in our mind. Uh, The Apostle Paul was a very logical person, very logical in the way he presents arguments. And yet, as Peter said, Paul has some things that are hard to understand. Lord, help us to have the patience to look at it carefully and for your people to really see how important that this doctrine is to us, that all of our hope hinges on the doctrine that we've been discussing, justification by faith. Lord, help us and help us to serve you in a better way each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.